I'm thankful this morning for the richness of the message that we've already heard and that we've sung together, and that was uh, part of uh, part of the prayer that the the theme of our weakness being an opportunity for Jesus is is very clear already it's already in our minds and if we've been focusing on the words that we've we've sung together we've already gotten in many ways a message and a sermon and hopefully that that will simply um, confirm what God will say through his word today we're continuing of course in the book of uh, the second letter to the Corinthians, really probably the third letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but the second one that we have uh, uh, preserved for us. We're in chapter 12 today. Um, It's part of Paul's defense of his apostleship. It's uh, part of him uh, giving a uh, defense uh, against his critics that he is actually qualified to be an apostle because there were some false teachers and some critics that were opposing him and saying he's not really a, an apostle. He's not, he's not truly one of the chosen ones to, to carry the message of Jesus. And they had their al- ulterior motives for saying that because they wanted to be more prominent. But Paul begins this, and the theme that we'll be considering is the theme of exalting in his weaknesses. Most of us, I'm sure, remember that a couple years ago, the Browns had a notable season that was even um, recognized with a parade in Cleveland. Um, But it it was a season with no wins. I think it It was only the second time in the NFL history that a team went through an entire season without winning even one game. And the celebration happened, we call it a celebration, there was a parade, I guess, but it was a mockery. It was a mockery because we don't celebrate weakness. We We don't trumpet the ways that we failed we can remember probably as kids where we would brag about things. I remember bragging, uh, being a, in a farm community, we would brag about our tractors. My tractor's a three-plow tractor. It'll pull three-bottom plow. Well, we pull a four-bottom plow with our tractor. But nobody would say, well, yeah, ours, ours doesn't pull much of anything. It's just, I'm bragging about that. So we, we brag about strengths. It's our nature. It's our nature to look for something bigger or better or stronger and, and to, to cling to that and to, to just talk about it and say, this is, this is a great thing. Well, we'll read that Paul had something like that he could have used as defense for his apostleship, but he chose not to. So we'll begin with chap, chapter 11, verse 30, uh, on page 911 in uh, the Pew Bibles. Chapter 11, verse 30 says, If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. 
I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. <clears throat> Paul could have talked about the revelation that he received as he, as he went up to paradise, either in the body or out of the body. He could have talked about that experience. He begins by saying he's, he's talking about another person, but he's doing that really just to not draw that much attention to himself. But by the seventh verse, we know he changes, he changes the vernacular and it's, he's talking about himself. Why would, why would he be uh, in need of something to keep him from boasting if it had not been him who had the revelation? Clearly, he is talking about himself, though he starts out talking about, I knew a man. So he, he says, I, I could be bragging about this, but I will refrain. So he doesn't dwell on that, though he mentions it. It's an experience that's never mentioned in any of uh, the other letters of Paul. It's not, it's not defined in the book of Acts, though there's, there are things that, that uh, scholars have said, well, it might have happened at this time. It might have happened when he was, um, when he was stoned. And stoned, excuse me. When he was when they tried to kill him with stones and that that he had almost uh, uh, he, he had to be revived they thought he was dead so some people think well when, when the stones had almost taken his life or maybe they did take his life and maybe was revived from being dead but that's conjecture and uh, so that's a long a long uh, talk about something that's really just conjecture. Nobody knows when it happened. Um, but it's a unique experience, and it's, it's unusual even in the personal nature of it for Paul to share something so, so close to his heart or so close to his, um, to his uh, own experience. But as he, as he talks about it very briefly, he says it had the potential to make him conceited. He acknowledges the danger of being useful to the Lord or, or having a gift from the Lord. 
That's, that's part of the dilemma, really, of being servants of Christ. There is one side of that where we, we might be um, hesitant or we might be reluctant to use our gift because, well, I, I just don't think I'm very good at it. Maybe we'll say that and maybe, maybe we're being honest when we say that or maybe it's our pride that is actually in the way because when we're proud, we're in danger of failing when we, when we use our gifts. So that's, that's potentially a problem. So that's one side of the, of the equation where we're, we are reluctant to be used by God even though he has invested gifts in us. And yet the other side of it is almost universal as well. That if he uses us in the, the way he has gifted us, there is a temptation for us to become proud of that. And Paul says twice, so that I would not be conceited, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. That's certainly not the first time and not the only time that the Bible speaks in very specific, very deliberate terms about pride. Um, in our vernacular today and in, in our world today, pride is, is often celebrated. Um, sometimes we're simply using the word differently than it's used in the Bible, and I'm not trying to criticize that. When a parent says they're proud of their child, they're, they're probably not using it in an arrogant way. They're probably not using it in a way that the Bible would would criticize or would condemn, they're using it in a way to say, I'm pleased with my child, or to say that, that they, they have, um, they've done what I wanted them to do, or they're, they're showing themselves to be um, good at something. And we would, we would be affirming them, which isn't a wrong thing to do. It's actually something we should do as parents. But if it is actually pride in the biblical sense, there's actually no place in the Bible where being proud of ourself is commended. There, there, it is universally condemned in Scripture as a sin. And it goes back even to the very first sin that had its roots in the pride of Adam and Eve to, to exalt themselves and say, I, I can make decisions for myself. And that's, that's how the temptation came to them. And I say that's the original sin, but that's really not the original sin because preceding that was the sin of the devil himself as he exalted himself against God. So pride is the root of, we, we could say, of every sin. Just to quote from one of my favorite authors, C.J. Mahaney has written a little book which I would recommend it if you've never read it. It's, it's a, a great book that you could read in a couple hours even if you read slowly like I do. It's called Humility, True Greatness and the author's name is C.J. Mahaney. But in that, he puts forth the idea that, that pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. And he also, he defines humility in this way. He says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of his holiness and our sinfulness. We can observe a lot of things about pride and what it does. 
And so the deliberate nature of God to intervene in Paul's life and not allow him to become conceited by that revelation is a measure of God's grace, is an instrument of God's grace to, to prevent pride in him was to make him useful to God because pride destroys our usefulness by a lot of, a, a lot of details. It, 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 uh, the Bible says in James 4 verse 6 says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So it puts distance between us and God. We know by our experience with others that a proud person also puts distance between themselves and their peers. We know that pride exalts itself against God and steals his glory. Ultimately, it's a lie when we rely on ourselves. When we say, I'm the source of, of this good thing or of this gift or of, of this thing that brings attention to myself, I'm really what it's all about. And we, we become so full of ourself that there's no room for Jesus to shine through us. So the destructiveness of pride makes it very intentional for God to prevent it from happening in our lives. In Paul's life, this testimony talks of the specific um, event, though he doesn't say what the thorn in the flesh is, it says that he was carrying about something, something that would not go away. Um, there's so many uh, different ideas about what that was. Um, some kind of a health issue, some kind of even a psychological issue that he was plagued with the regrets of, of his persecution of the church. Some kind of temptation that never left him. Could have been any of those things. God doesn't tell us what it is. Paul doesn't tell us what it is. And I'm thankful that he doesn't. <laughs> because when we use the term a thorn in the flesh and referring to Paul in this passage, all of us can relate. What is, what is our current issue? What is it that right now we would be pleading for God to take it away? It might be a health issue a relationship issue, a financial issue. It could be some kind of, of physical ailment or the, the ailment of someone we love. We're, we're begging God to solve that problem. Well, as Paul was begging God or pleading, as he says, I pleaded with God three times. There's no hint whatsoever that Paul thought God was unable to do what he was asking. He was convinced God was able to do what he was asking. And of course he would have been convinced of that. Paul himself was an instrument of healing in the lives of people around him. There's one passage that says uh, the, the miracles of God were manifested in a very unusual way through Paul. I think this is the only place in scripture where this kind of thing happened that it was th that even a handkerchief from Paul was taken and laid on a sick person and they became well. Not, not to um, 
promote the idea of some kind of magical device or magical fabric, but that the power of Christ through Paul was so powerful that miracles were happening in that way. We remember that when he was shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta, that um, he was bitten by a snake and miraculously it had no effect on him whatsoever and then someone on that island was also sick and he went to them and prayed for them and touched them and they were healed so the miracle of, of God healing physical ailments was clear in Paul's life he knew that he knew the scriptures that, that promised that Certainly he, he was familiar with Isaiah chapter 40 because earlier in Isaiah chapter 40, the, uh, the, the text says, who has been the counselor of the Lord and who has taught him all that he knows? And so if we, if we read Romans chapter 11, it sounds very, very familiar and we think probably Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 40 when he wrote Romans 11 and says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So at the end of Isaiah 40, some of us probably know this by heart, Isaiah 40, 31, many of us may have it as a life verse. It says, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall walk and not faint. That's one of many passages in, in the Old Testament all of which Paul would have known, that promise or allude to the strength of God that comes to us when we need it. And yet Paul, who is renowned for his following of Jesus Christ, is pleading three times that God would take away something that was hindering him. We can imagine how he could have thought that through. And what, what kind of defense or argument or, or presentation he would have had to the Lord. He, he would say, Lord, you know that I'm your servant. You know that all of my life belongs to you. You know that this is a distraction from my ministry. You know that it is keeping me from doing what I want to do for you. Take it away because I will be more useful if you take it away. Wouldn't that make sense? Doesn't it sound familiar to us? Have we ever prayed like that? Lord, I would be more useful if this problem was taken away. And yet, we're left in the frustration, maybe, of something that doesn't go away and maybe will not go away in this life. It, it seems like Either God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. Or maybe we're not even hearing any answer at all. We, we hear only silence when we beg for God to take away what, what that difficulty is. Well, I would be very presumptuous to say, I know the answer why God doesn't take that away from you or why he doesn't take it away from me when I ask for something I don't always know that answer. I know that in this case, Paul gave the answer as his humility was God's objective. And Paul's humility was of greater importance than whatever 
ministry that he could have done if the thorn in the flesh had been taken away. Well, who knows that? Does Paul know that? Do the other apostles know that? They might have prayed with Paul or they might have prayed for Paul if they knew what this issue was. No, none of us know that. Paul didn't know that. Only God knows what way we are best used by him. And in the pain of the things that bring humility into our life, he is using his wisdom to determine what is actually best. Now, if, if our theology puts us at the center and God as the one who provides everything we need and everything for our comfort and everything for our benefit, then it's hard to fit that. It's hard to fit a thorn in the flesh that he won't take away into our theology because we're saying, well, it just doesn't make sense. Why, why won't he do this? After all, he's, he's able to do it, but he's unwilling to do it. But if God is at the center of our theology and we are his servant and our life is subjected to the greater purpose of the gospel itself, then it's very much like the song we sang and like uh, Zoli's comments before the prayer that we are a broken vessel. Paul said, we have this treasure, referring to the gospel, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the excellency of the power might be seen of God and not of us. You see, if everything's all put together and everything's all perfect and the vessel is beautiful, maybe nobody knows what's really inside of it. What a beautiful vase! But that's as far as it goes. That's as far as it goes and <clears throat> that's as much as people see. It's a beautiful container. But what's inside? But a broken container that's leaking or that's, that's got cracks in it. There's, and, and, and that picture that Paul gives of the jar of clay talks about the shining forth of the gospel. So we could almost see that the, the, the clay jar has some cracks in it and the light inside can't be contained. It's, it's coming out through the cracks in the vessel. But nobody's looking at the jar. Nobody's saying, what a great jar. It's just a plain old dirt jar. But inside of it, something more precious than any other component, any other element that can be contained in a vessel is in there and it's shining through those cracks and people are seeing it and saying, what, where is that light coming from? What a glorious light I see shining through those cracks. So the deliberate, intentional work of God to humble us is for that purpose so that we're not full of ourselves; we're full of him we're only comfortable with that and maybe we're never comfortable with it but we're only accepting of that if we realize it's not about us the story's not about us John the Baptist said that because he had followers and there was a tremendous following for him at the time of Christ and some people came to him and he said, who are you? And he 
And they say, are you, are you a prophet that comes? Are you? No, 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 no. But in the end, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Jesus must become more prominent. I must become less prominent. He is what this is about. It's not about me. That's, that's a sermon preached at every funeral, whether the preacher says it or not in the eulogy. But it's the sermon that's preached from the coffin itself. Because even though many times we appropriately talk about the value of the life of the person who's now gone, we can't really deny that they're gone. We can't really deny their weakness and the fact that they have become subjected to the, the ravages of this life. Whether it's from old age or whether it's from an accident or a disease, they are mortal. And we're left with the dilemma that if all we're there for is to honor the person who has died, then it's over, then the story's over. But really, we ought to not only look down into the coffin and recognize the value of that life, but we ought to look up to see that there is one who is not mortal, who welcomes us into his kingdom so that we are more than just dust. We are a tool to be used by the creator of the universe for his glory for his kingdom, for his eternal purposes. Isn't that better than the best we could do on our own? But it comes through the path of humility. And that's always a difficult path. And it's always a disappointment when we are pleading for God to take something away and he does not. Or pleading for God to give us something that we feel is useful and he does not. Because we know he could but he chooses not to. Well, this story from Paul, I think it, it is, is helpful to all of us because all of us have a thorn in the flesh, or maybe many. If, if we take the time to listen to people's stories, we will learn that every person has something if they're, if they're old enough, not every person, not, not infants maybe, but if you live long enough, you, this will be your experience in life. And if you live long enough, you will see your own frailty. We'll, we'll experience the, the issues that come up in Ecclesiastes chapter 13. We'll experience that. The grinders will cease because there are few. Those that look out the windows will be dimmed and our hearing will diminish and will be bowed and everything will be a pain and we'll be afraid of what's high. And, and all of those things that, that Solomon tells us are going to happen, they will happen to us and our weakness will become an obvious thing to us. And the Bible says that as God reveals those weaknesses, he is giving us grace. So that in the grace of our human weakness, we look to him. And in that same grace, he shines through us and he fills us to become useful to him. Well, this story, I think, is, is something that most of us relate to. 
and it and it's like um, like if we're walking through the metro parks and we get off the path and we're lost and the sun's going down and we don't know where we are and we're wandering through there and we see oh there's a signpost and it's pointing in this direction and and as as the darkness is settling in we find our way back to a path and back to civilization well I think the words of, of poets and of Paul and of the prophets that really resonate with us are like those signposts because they're saying wherever I am as, as desperate as I am and as difficult as this situation is somebody was here before they left a, they left a signpost in the ground and the words that they've written resonate with us because they experienced what I'm experiencing. And the difficulty and the tears and, the, and the, the silence of God or the refusal of God to do something that I've asked him to do is, is not new. A giant of the faith like Paul went through it. Well, that encouragement often comes to me through songs. And the, the song that I'd like to quote is written by Laura Story. And it points not just to the limitations of, of health and difficulty, but it also hints at the greatest weakness we ever manifest. And this would resonate with Paul too. Because <clears throat> when he was strong, he was a persecutor of the church. And he was able to do what he wanted. He was going to get permission to do more persecuting of these followers of Jesus when all of a sudden a light stopped him in his path and said, Who, why are you persecuting me? But the strong Paul was a destroyer of the people of faith. The weak Paul was a builder of the faith. Like Moses, the strong Moses tried to release the people from, from the, the slavery of Egypt by killing an Egyptian. The weak Moses had to be convinced by God to, to be the leader of his people. And probably the longest conversation in the Bible between God and a man is that conversation with Moses at the burning bush where Moses is literally arguing with God that he, he's not the one to do this. But the weak Moses is the one who actually leads God's people out of Egypt across the Red Sea. The weak Moses is the one who receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. He's, he's the one who takes them for 40 years through the wilderness to the border of the promised land. The strong Peter is the one who promised that he would never deny the Lord, but that he would die for him rather than deny him. The weak Peter, and then of course did deny him three times. The weak Peter is the one who preached at Pentecost led people to the Lord, was a leader in the church, and then literally did die for Jesus. But Paul's story is the story of ultimate weakness before God. As he tried to justify himself early, as in his 
in his work as a Pharisee and a persecutor, he was trying to keep the law, trying to be good enough for God and believing that his works would do that. But weakness is the only thing that's actually acceptable before God at, at the point of salvation. We can't come to God and say, I, I'm bringing you all of these good things, <clears throat> good things, and that's why you should accept me. That's why I'm qualified to be in your kingdom. We come bankrupt. We come empty. And so in the song that's called Grace by Laura Story, she says, My heart is so proud. My mind is so unfocused. I see the things you do in me as great things I have done. And now you gently break me. Then lovingly you take me and hold me as my father and mold me as my maker. At times I may grow weak and feel a bit discouraged, knowing that someone somewhere could do a better job. For who am I to serve you? I know I don't deserve you, and that's the part that burns in my heart and keeps me hanging on. As I walk with you, I'm learning what your grace really means. The price that I could never pay was paid at Calvary. So instead of trying to repay you, I'm learning to simply obey you by giving up my life to you for all that you've given me. I ask you, how many times will you pick me up when I keep on letting you down? And each time I fall short of your glory, how far will forgiveness abound? And you answer, my child, I love you. And as long as you're seeking my face, you'll walk in the power of my daily sufficient grace. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we recognize our weakness. We recognize that we are frustrated sometimes by not being able to change our situation to make it what we want and even by pleading with you sometimes it does not change. Sometimes we, we are thankful that you do change it. That you are able to change it all the time we have no doubt. And yet sometimes you choose not to. And so we pray Lord for a heart that is willing to see your glory in spite of our weakness. And maybe because of our weakness. So we come to you helpless but not hopeless because we believe that your promises are true and that your promise to shine through us because we are weak will be fulfilled. And so we thank you as hard as it is. We thank you for the things that humble us if they make us useful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.